What can software development teams learn from air disasters? I'm Brian Orlando. I'm an Agile coach out of Tampa, Florida, and host of the Agile podcast right here on this channel. And today, I would like to talk about the training that was created for commercial aviation crews to encourage a work culture that could help prevent disasters. Now, if you found this video and you work in agile software development, you've probably already are familiar with the more common excuses for reckless, risky, or otherwise poorly thought out decision-making that create delays or worse bugs and technical debt. There are some excuses like we can't take forever to decide. I'm going to make an executive decision. There's no need to check metrics or check with the users because I know the best thing for our software. Hey, stop asking questions. Just do what I tell you. Right, that's the typical appeal to authority. We're too busy to complete both the bugs and the features. So just focus on what I tell you. Focus on the features usually is uh, the outcome of that situation. We'll automate the testing when there's more time. In my opinion, these types of conflicts in decision making usually arise because management of software development is chiefly concerned with efficiency, while the management of both quality assurance and product management slash product ownership are chiefly concerned with effectiveness. Now, we host an entire podcast, the Agile Podcast, where we do deep dives on topics like the philosophy of effectiveness versus efficiency. Check that out because this is not a deep dive into that specific topic. However, the balance of effectiveness and efficiency can cause major challenges when there's no force that exists to keep the two in check. Now, if you're inside of an aircraft in the sky that's having unknown issues, the last thing that you want is an imbalance in decision making. Now, in the 1970s, after observing a series of escalating failures, meaning both air disasters and mounting fatalities from those disasters, a workshop was arranged between NASA and the airline industry to exchange ideas and information on the systemic problems that were being observed. The summary of this workshop is available in a short 255-page document titled Resource Management on the Flight Deck. That was in June of 1979, but I will help summarize the document and uh, several other related studies in this video. One of the main ideas of this document is that bad decisions need to be identified and then revised. And that's only possible through learning or practice, experience, questioning, and testing. Now, those types of revisions to your bad ideas or ideas that you're not sure are bad can only happen under certain conditions. Those conditions take into account the way that you've practiced. We'll call this a theory of practice. And that is what teams have developed through training and experience, the way they think about their job because it's the way that they've learned and practiced it. Number two, the abilities of crew members to combine skills in advocacy and inquiry. Number three, the appropriate management skills and style of the captain. And number four, the fact that roles are well understood and role modification methods are mutually shared between team members. Let's start with the first concept, theory of practice. A theory of practice is defined as a long-term theory, which is relatively stable and evolves only through slow developmental processes and is used to design, test, and implement theories of the situation. Next question, what's theory of situation? Well, theory of situation is defined as a set of goals, beliefs, and behaviors that proves a coherent picture of what is happening in the moment and what action is appropriate. The skills and willingness of a flight crew to be alert to possible errors in the theory become critical to their effectiveness and their ability to ensure a safe flight. 
The theory of practice is evolved through training and learning, and the theory of situation is evolved through experiences. It's kind of a, a quick way to separate the two in your mind. Some key insights from the document to watch out for, though. The more central a theory is to an individual's self-concept and self-esteem, the less likely that they will revise that theory. Number two, the more a theory is overlearned, the less likely it will be to be revised. And number three, probably the more important of the concepts is the more that a combination of inquiry is built into a theory, the more likely a revision is possible. Also, the more the situation makes disconfirming evidence available, the more likely that a revision is possible. But watch out because the opposite of that is also true. The absence of feedback or evidence can cause us to confirm a faulty theory. To make matters worse, the document cites that, quote, the greater the amount of ambiguity, confusion, information overload, and stress on the individual, the less likely revision is possible, usually relying on a well-learned theory rather than searching for a new one. I'd like to pivot to the management condition with a direct quote from page 51 of the document. Excessive role restriction is the common result of over-controlling management styles. The document finds that what is important is that crews be clear about the areas in which redundancy is expected and needed and the areas in which overlap is wasteful and hazardous. So we see this in software development if you've ever worked on a cross-functional team or especially in some of the more agile shops that are out there. You can clearly contrast with a non-cross-functional team where maybe you've got a database team that has to do their work and then a UI team or a front-end team and a back-end team and nobody can release anything to production until every single team is done with their little milestones. Whereas the advantages of a cross-functional development team over these types of component teams is that the cross-functional team uh, will be able to finish any work handed to them. They'll be able to finish it quicker and cheaper and arguably better uh, than component teams. The document goes on to point out that over-differentiation in roles occurs when different roles are so completely distinct that different individuals have great difficulty knowing what the other is doing. The risk is that they make erroneous assumptions about one another and fail to communicate enough to test assumptions. As far as management on the flight deck, the captain retains the ability to make binding decisions, but places a positive responsibility on the other crew members to raise questions or suggest alternatives, which brings us to what I feel is the most useful concept for a pragmatist like myself, the advocacy and inquiry matrix, which I will now show right here. On one axis, you've got advocacy, which is the need to convey your ideas and theories to others. And on the other axis, you've got inquiry, which is the need to understand the theories or ideas of others. Now, at first glance, you might think that advocacy and inquiry are opposites, but I would propose, from my experience, that the absolute best managers, who are rare, are excellent at both. For air crews, the training focuses on these skills and the development of advocacy and inquiry. And the training focuses on these skills together because it is essential for all members of the crew to be able to inquire about the beliefs of the other members of the team 
as well as advocate their view of the situation. Because whenever a team member recognizes that something is happening that does not completely fit their theory of the situation, they need to begin asking a few questions. Number one, could we be mistaken? Number two, is there some other explanation for what is happening? Number three, is there any information that we have or that we could obtain that could help us understand? I believe that this system is important, and let's take a second to look at these concepts through the lens of a typical Agile software development team. Keeping in mind what we just learned, the greater the amount of ambiguity, confusion, information overload, and or stress, the less likely an idea or theory is to be revised. Now, that should remind you of a team that you've been on at one time or another. It certainly reminds me uh, of many of my teams. Now, let's start with theories of practice. So how can we learn new theories of practice or continue to evolve the theories and ideas that we already have? Well, it's actually pretty easy. We did a podcast about this not too long ago about setting up and maintaining communities of practice. We're going to touch on those here. You can check out this video for other ideas. The basic idea is you'll have to set up a presentation of the relevant theory or of the new theories, right? And you want to hold these discussions in your workplace or among your peers about case examples from you or your other coworkers or your peers' experiences so that you can apply your theories and you can talk through your reflections on the material. Another method you can think about using is simulation or gamification where you create practice problems to work with your group together, after which you have a chance to discuss and give each other feedback and continue in repeated practices in different ways or with different teams. Now, companies that have established functioning communities of interest or communities of practice, whatever you want to call it, that goes a long way towards helping with this. But if your company doesn't have one, you can look outside of your company. In the Tampa area here, there's lots of agile meetups that are great for this type of information exchange and sharing. As far as role restrictions and over-differentiation, you'll likely have to target the larger issue at play if you're part of an organization where you've got silos for teams. So this is a much, much bigger conversation. We're not going to be able to tackle the entire thing here, but if work is being passed from a database team to a back-end team to a front-end team and then to a QA team before it ever has a chance to see the light of day, then you have some very traditional old school mentalities at work and you have some silos that are going to need to be broken down. I would encourage you to study some of the more agile ways of working that are out there. Most modern software development shops that have implemented some facet of the agile manifesto principles of agile have moved away from this type of work to more cross-functional teams where while the individual team members may still have specialized skill sets, the entire team as a whole has all of the skills necessary to fully deal with the problems that they're trying to solve. Now, for what I feel is the most important concept, I'd like it if everyone sketched out the advocacy and inquiry grid during their conversations. It could be put to great use even outside of software development, but to help you get thinking about how team members can combine skills in both advocacy and inquiry, let me read the summary of some air disasters from the era around the 70s, what we began with. And you can start thinking about or writing out on your sketch which quadrant each crew member scored in during the exchange in the examples that I give. Let's start with the Tenerife Airport disaster. 
uh, KLM Flight 4805 and Pan Am Flight 1736 collided on the runway at Tenerife. Now, several factors contributed to the accident, such as heavy fog, extra traffic due to the closure of nearby airport, and unclear air traffic control language or phrases. But the likely cause was that the captain of the KLM flight believed he was clear for takeoff when he was not, and the runway was not clear. The captain proceeded with takeoff, even though his first officer was still attempting to confirm with air traffic control, and the flight engineer expressed doubt about the takeoff. KLM 4805 collided with the taxiing Pan Am flight shortly after in one of what is still the most deadly accidents in aviation history. Investigators suggested that one reason for the captain's insistence was his desire to leave as soon as possible in order to comply with KLM's duty time regulations, which only went into place earlier that year and before the weather deteriorated even further. Now, in that instance, the captain exhibited low inquiry, while the first officer and the flight engineer exhibited both low inquiry and low advocacy. Next example is Air India 855. A misunderstanding in communication between the captain and the first officer and flight engineer arose after an instrument failure in the captain's altitude indicator to know if the plane is banked or not, important at night, when no lights are on the horizon. Though the flight engineer tried to draw his attention to the correct working backup instrument, the captain for some reason continued to bank left to attempt in an attempt to resolve the issue, leading to a crash just over 100 seconds after takeoff in one of India's most deadly air disasters. Now, again, in that instance, the captain's inquiry to how the rest of his crew thought was low, and the first officer and flight engineer advocacy for their ideas were low. So it's not to be completely doom and gloom. In uh, 1989, about 10 years after the various training programs from the document that we're referencing were rolled out, while at cruising altitude, United Airlines 232 had a explosive disintegration of a fan disc in a DC-10, which tore out components, including parts of the hydraulic system and horizontal stabilizer. And if you know anything about aircraft, you know that you can't really fly without a horizontal stabilizer. Now, Hydraulics allow humans to move objects of immense weight and pressure, and horizontal stabilizers prevent up and down movement and motion of the aircraft nose, which is pitching up and down the aircraft. So despite having little control of the aircraft, the crew managed to crash land at Sioux City Airport. The ability of the crew to work together to land a basically unflyable aircraft would only be possible if the entire crew was working together with one purpose— and advocating and inquiring all at an expert level. To wrap this topic, let me hit each point uh, in no particular order. We want to avoid role restrictions and over-differentiation, a.k.a. siloing. We want to use the concept of inquiry and advocacy to fully explore the problems that your team is facing and to generate more and higher quality options. And we want to train team members constantly to keep their theories of practice as up-to-date as possible, and to expose them to different takes on their theories or ideas. Uh, This is particularly important, especially in the software world, where employees change companies fairly regularly, and where the management in each company is potentially radically different. Because later studies on the topic of aircrew training noted that there could be 
and a, quote, decay in acceptance of basic concepts, even with recurrent training. Now, the later studies speculate that this could be because of a lack of management support and a failure by evaluators to reinforce the practice of trainings. Now, the final thing to watch out for is the broadening of training to include non-pilots because programs that stretch to fit all groups lack the specificity needed to change any one group's behavior. So the literature urges us to keep our training specific and tailored. Well, that's it. I hope you learned something that you can take back to your teams and your companies and use to make better decisions when you're dealing with uh, new problems or stressful situations or uncertainty. If you enjoyed this video, please check out our other deep dives into some of the related topics that I mentioned here.